My throat hurts. From all the screaming before this started? Yeah. I don't know what's going on in here. Do you, ah! have, do you have any uh, allergies? I was You stung- just went... <sighs> I was stung by a bee when I was young, and I puffed up really, really badly and had to go to the hospital, and they gave me one of those pens, and I lost it and have never been stung by a bee again, so I'm not sure if that's going to be a problem. Holy mm-hmm. cow. You've dodged a lot of bee bullets. Thank you. Be safe out there, huh? That's our show. Uh, that's Sam Kiefer. Hey, guys. Sam is sitting next to me. My name is Nick Cordry. I host the show. By the way, you're listening to the Reading Aloud podcast. It's a literary variety show of sorts. Welcome to the show. Glad you joined us. We had a book club recently that was so much fun. Sam, that was that was a great conversation. Oh, that was such a fun. It's a, it's a book that provides a lot of... Uh, a lot of grist for the mill. There's a lot to talk about. I mean, there's that. I like that phrase. Yeah, grist for the mill. Uh, Our Souls at Night, Ken Harumph. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, beautiful novel. And so clean and easy and precise. So tight. It's like a very simple, easy read. Um, so if you didn't listen to that book club, check it out and pick up the book because it was great. This coming book, very different book. Uh, a book called Geek Love. Geek Love, Catherine Dunn, came out 30 years ago or so. Um, But every time I've seen that book on a friend's bookshelf, they've said, you have to read this book. This book is a must read. And I've been putting it off and putting it off, just like so many books that I've been told that I have to read by my smart smart and literate friends. So I was like, this is the time. And she just passed away like three weeks ago. So I feel like it's timely. It's good to read this book and get into Catherine Dunn. So... Geek Love. Uh, We record that, I believe, on the 15th or the 17th of June. Um, So get in your thoughts. Yeah, we record on the 15th, 15th or 16th, so of June. So read that book. Pick it up at your library or local independent bookstore. Read it and communicate with us. And you can call us. Yes. We have a phone number. That's right. It's a voicemail system. We had a couple of voicemails last week, which was really fun to go through. If you want to be a part of this, all you have to do is pick up your telephone. Well, yeah, I guess you have to read the book first, don't you? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, if you just want to share. Really call in with anything. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, The number, are you ready? Here it comes. 702-751-7300. Two, three. That number once again, 702-751-7323. Give us a call and be a part of the show. Um, but let's get to this week's show. A really fun conversation with my guest, Eli Addy. This is his second time on Reading Aloud. He is a, he started out as a writer, a political writer. He worked for, uh, he was a special assistant to President Clinton in his second term. And then when Gore was running in 2000, uh, he was his chief speechwriter. He was there for the concession speech. We talked about that in a previous episode of Reading Aloud. But this time we're talking about a book that he collaborated on with Truman Capote's estate and uh, these photographs, these long lost photographs that his father took of Truman Capote that are incredible. Um, It's this beautiful book. It's this like lovely Brooklyn coffee table book that is just gorgeous. And we talk about that, but we talk about his uh, time working for Aaron Sorkin at the West Wing. Uh, We talk about his time working with the Gore campaign. We talk about Guided by Voices, which is both of our favorite bands. Um, But there's a whole, this is a real fun, rich conversation with a very bright guy. So here it comes, my conversation with a talented writer, 
His name is Eli Addy. Hello, testing. What do you think? One, How does two, that feel? Three. Does that feel um, better or yeah, worse? I'm going to leave the headphones on. It's just it's a style well. thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, look your best. However you want. <laughs> Whatever it takes for you to the, be That's more what's confident. important about podcasts. By the way, do you know that, are you aware of the Josh Molina podcast? Not only am I aware of it, um, but I. Thank you, sir. I forced myself on him oh, yeah, via you, Twitter. You have to do it. You have to yeah. do it. I know him uh, like barely. Mm. We did a. He's the greatest. He's the fucking greatest. Um, but like, we're not pals, but we're like online friends. Yeah, and, he's a great guy. You guys would be fast friends. He's, yeah, he's delightful. We did this um, short play festival thing. Oh wow! A bunch of years ago, and we had to kiss on stage. So we, I have this. Really. I mean, I've, I'm one of few men who's kissed Josh Molina on the, you, on the mouth. So you, so, you, who so knows? says you. Who knows? I'm not going to pry. Um, but, uh, yeah, I sent him a private message like three days ago. I was like, hey, I'm going to force myself onto your oh, podcast. Oh, you totally should go on. Because I think he's really – I actually did one recently. I mean, it hasn't posted yet. But, but, but I did one for season one, and I wasn't there season one. So, you know, oh. it's sort of – so essentially I did it as a fan, and I think they're going to do a lot of that. Um. Know? He asked me, he wrote me back and said, which, which episodes in season two are your, uh, are your favorites? <clears throat> and I rambled off like not, you know, oh, nine that's episodes. Awesome. That's so great. Um, is Big Block of Cheese in season Big two? Big Block of Cheese is only in season one and two. And actually the one that I did is, is the season one Big Block of Cheese episode, actually. You were there um, for that one. I wasn't there. I wasn't there for either the first oh, two seasons. Oh, that was the one that you did. But on I did the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and and because I was emailing with him, and, and he said, "Come on, the thing." And I said, "Well, I'm not. Wasn't there yet?" And he said, "That's okay." So, you know, because I don't him and another, those guys. And a uh, comedian. It's him and no, a guy named uh, Rishikesh. Like it's spelled something like Hearaway or something. Who is a podcast guy? They've been friends for a long time, but he does a podcast called Song Exploder. That's apparently a very big podcast where, like, they'll have Courtney Barnett on oh, to shit. talk about how she did a song, a particular song. Oh, cool! And they'll have all kinds of artists on, and so I guess he's from the podcasting world to some degree. Gotcha. And a uh, big West Wing fan, and so they just decided to do it. And they weren't sure if they were going to do like one season or yeah. They first, I think their idea was to stop at the moment Josh joined the show. But then I think they decided to go through the series. But actually, yeah, yeah. Josh is so hilarious. I don't know if you, you must follow him on Twitter. Yes, yeah, of course. He had course. a great tweet the other day uh, that what somebody, he tweet, somebody tweeted him a question. Were there ever discussions of you uh, joining the newsroom? And he, he tweeted back, yes, uh, but not by anyone who cast the show. <laughs> just him and his friends? Yeah, exactly. Him and his wife? I just think he's so funny. Eli Addy is here, and I, I mean, I, of course we're going to talk about this book, and, but since we're on the subject of, of the West Wing, um, how did you find your way to, um, to Aaron Sor- Sorkin? Oh, it's a funny thing. I, 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 we were just talking. Were we talking on mic about the West Wing podcast? Yeah, because I just told the story on the West Wing podcast. Yet to be broadcast. Oh, hopefully podcast. this gets yeah. Yeah, dropped. you can scoop them. The basic thing. So I was working in the White House uh, in the Clinton Gore years, and I worked um, uh, as Al Gore's chief speechwriter. That was my last job, and and uh, through the you know final sands in the hourglass of the Florida recount. Really rough. Uh, a violent, demoralizing experience for everybody involved. And so I basically had been a political speechwriter. I, I never had any ambition of Hollywood or screenwriting or television writing. It had never occurred to me. But a guy I had known from college who was a talent agent around that time mm. sent me a, a, an email 
during the Florida recount, just sort of reaching out because he'd, he'd heard, I hadn't even been in touch with him, but he'd heard that I was working for Gore saying, you know, what's going on in Florida and what's happening? And, you know, if this doesn't work out, you should sell out and become a screenwriter. And, um, and I think he made a reference to the West Wing, which had been on for like a year at that point, And I had barely seen it. I'd seen like half of the pilot, not really liked it actually, because I was sort of distracted and it was like Rob Lowe and a hooker. And, yeah. you know, I had just been in the White House that day and Rob Lowe wasn't there and there were no hookers there. It did, you know, the verisimilitude kind of bumped me. Uh, no, but I wasn't like, I wasn't in a place to receive it in a way. But so this guy planted this idea in my head and I was thinking, because we knew for most of the Florida recount, it was not going to go well. You know, you've got a terminally ill patient on your hands and you're trying everything. And um, so I was thinking, well, what do I do if this doesn't work out? And, um, and, and it just was on my mind. And I had a couple friends from college who were television writers, comedy writers. So I, I knew from them that there were teams of people who wrote television. So I thought, well, maybe I should mm. be a television writer. Maybe I could try that because I wouldn't have to know how to do it. I'd just join one of these little groups of people and the other people would all know how and I would just sit there quietly. Perfect. So, um, so when the Florida recount ended... Every night I'm going out to bars and restaurants with all my, you know, sort of Democratic staffer friends and reporter friends. And everybody's saying, what are you doing? Are you staying in town? Are you going to, you know, slit your wrists? Are you going to move to New York? <laughs> and I said to a lot of people, you know, I'm thinking of becoming a television writer. And every single person to a person, maybe 40 people in the space of a week and a half said the West Wing. You should go work for the West Wing. Like, wow. It was that simple because, you know, it was a TV show about what I had done. Um, so I watched like one or two episodes on the air and then I thought, actually, this is pretty fucking good. You know, like I, I just hadn't focused on it when I sure. saw it before. So um, I talked to a couple friends in L.A. and like just I don't even remember what other conversations I had about it. But I thought I should I should pursue this. I mean, I wasn't like passionate about it because it was such a weird wasn't my career, um, but literally I had read a newspaper profile of Aaron Sorkin in the Washington Post maybe six months earlier before I'd even really seen a full episode. And knew from that he seemed like a kind of a decent youngish guy, you know, or whatever. So from my Washington apartment, I called information and I asked for the number of, um, I called Los Angeles information and asked for the number of NBC. A true story. And uh, I said, you know, they answered, and I said, oh, hi, I'm trying to reach the West Wing. And they said, actually, you need to call Warner Brothers. And the NBC operator gave me the Warner Brothers number. I called that general number and asked for the West Wing. They switched me to the general offices for the West Wing. I said, I'm trying to reach Aaron Sorkin. They switched me to his office. His assistant, who is still his assistant right now, yeah. uh, answered. And, and I said, he doesn't know me. I was Al Gore's chief speechwriter till about two weeks ago. And she said, hold on. I was on hold for a little while, and then he got on the phone. And and now, you know, I know I know that uh, uh, for those who can't actually watch the podcast, I think Nate's mind was blown a little bit here. But but the truth is, you know, I had a sense that it, first of all, it wasn't that important to me when I made the call. It was just it was just like I'm going to call some guy. Right. But the other thing is, when you work on a presidential campaign, you can reach people. Yeah. You're calling on behalf of Al Gore or whatever, yeah, and I used to have to do that. He would say, "Call Jay Leno or call sure. this senator or get me this, you know, economist." Uh, but it's also like a like a junior lawyer on the OJ legal defense team calling like law and order and saying Dick Wolf doesn't know who I am, but like I was just helping to defend OJ. Probably someone's going to take your call. Um, and he got on the phone and he seemed he seemed excited, probably because he'd just been watching CNN all day every day. And so he said, you know, I remember the first thing he said was something like, you know, how are you? You guys were robbed. Like, are you sleeping okay? He seemed very sort of solicitous. And it was a quick conversation. And I said, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't seen a lot of the West Wing. And he said, I totally understand. You know, you must have been so busy. 
but I said, you know, I, I, I like what I've seen. And, you know, I, I said, I'm kind of interested in being a television writer. And, you know, you have a hit TV show. I'm not asking you for a job. Um, but maybe if I, you know, if I'm passing through L.A. sometime soon, you would have coffee with me. And he said, um, I'd love to consider you for a job. When are you going to be here? Uh, and I said, next month sometime, you know, off the top of my head. And he said, call my office and set it up. Click, end of the call. So I bought a plane ticket. I flew out. I stayed with a buddy of mine who was a comedy writer. And I, I met Aaron for half an hour. And, you know, short version. It took another few months till staffing season. But he hired me. And uh, totally on a flyer and took a chance. And, and, you know, I owe him, you know, my career and uh, probably all my belongings. Holy shit. Did you so have that conversation? Did you have that conversation when you sat down with him at his office at Warner Brothers or at like a restaurant? No, it was at Warner Brothers. It was in the morning. Um, and and I remember because I didn't really know how when you're working on a television show or a movie for that matter, when you revise a script, you know, you do the first draft on white paper and then you go to blue paper and then you go to pink paper and then you go right. to yellow paper. All Each revised page is a different color so that, you know, if you're acting in a show or whatever, you know that you're on the same version is your colleagues. So his office, first of all, there were sort of scenes of different color paper all over the floor organized in some way. I remember just thinking it was really cool and foreign. I didn't know what was going on. Mm. And it was only about a half an hour meeting. And I really remember thinking he was one of the smartest people I'd ever met. It it was very, very fast conversation. Um, I was very, very impressed by him. And I remember really thinking... He's an impressive guy. A very impressive guy. And he was, he was... I remember thinking, I really want this job, um, actually, like sometime in the middle of the meeting. Because the whole thing was kind of a, a, a lark for me. Uh, and, and, and to cap off the story, um, he hired me, I think, just thinking he may have some anecdotes. And yeah. I think I showed him some speeches I'd written. I hadn't written a script at that point. And um, after he hired me, and I was a few days away from moving to L.A. to take the job, I was talking to the one person I'm really still in touch with from elementary school because I moved neighborhoods, and so I didn't stay in my neighborhood for high school, uh, junior high school even. And I was talking to that guy whose name is actually also Aaron, and he was saying to me, I was telling him I'm taking this job, I'm moving to L.A., and he said, well, you know who Aaron Sorkin's mother is, don't you? I said, who's Aaron Sorkin's mother? And he said, Mrs. Sorkin. It was my fourth-grade elementary school teacher. Holy cow. And um, so it was fate. She didn't wow. remember me, though. I met her. I met her in the West Wing offices later. Oh, my Lovely God. Lovely woman, Claire Sorkin. Claire Sorkin. Yeah. Well, uh, when was the first, when you came into the writer's room for the first time as an employee, um, did people, did, uh, did, did the writers gravitate t- towards you because you had all of this real-world experience in the West Wing, or did they sort of cross their arms and be like, who's this guy I think he is? He can't write television. He's just some political junkie from Washington who's coming to try to invade our universe. What was that? You know, neither, because first of all, the West Wing had already, I started at the beginning of the third season, and and you would be very uh, uh, well justified if you thought the first two seasons were the best. You know, it didn't didn't need me there. They had consultants who'd who'd worked in different White Houses. D.D. Myers. uh, D.D. Myers and and, uh, Pat Cadell. Uh, and they brought on a whole bunch of new consultants when I started too. I think I was the the only full-time writer um, maybe that they ever had who'd worked in a White House, but Lawrence O'Donnell had preceded me for the first couple of years. He'd worked on Capitol Hill. He'd run the Senate Finance Committee. So it wasn't like they didn't have Washington, you know, patois or knowledge. Right. Um, I think uh, at the time I started, first of all, Lawrence had left the staff 
He was there for the first two seasons. He came back later, but he wasn't there when I got there. And Dee Dee Myers was still a consultant to the show, but she moved from L.A. back to Washington. So she used to come to the office a lot, I think, before I started. So I think I was someone who was there. Probably, I'm just guessing, they'd used a lot of Lawrence's and Dee Dee's stories already. Yeah. You know? So I just was somebody fresh with a lot. I'd just come off the Gore campaign. And also Aaron decided probably over the hiatus between the second and third season, to do a campaign in the third season, which in which it was faintly modeled on Gore versus Bush. It certainly was smart versus not smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I had a lot of experience in that kind of a campaign, running against a dumb guy. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just got along with everybody really well. It was actually, people were great, and, and I had to learn how to write scenes and how to write scripts, though. In the Aaron phase of the West Wing, it was more that people would feed him ideas and material, and he would kind of weave the script together. So yeah. it was the perfect way to start. Yeah. What is the biggest uh, misconception about Aaron Sorkin? The biggest misconception? Um, I'm not sure what misconceptions there are. I mean, something that amazed me about him when I first started working on The West Wing, um, and I don't feel that way about him now. It's an, actually an interesting thing. He's, he's a, as you know from working with him, he's super smart. He's hilariously funny. He's fully capable of talking like his characters, which is saying a lot. <laughs> um, but, but I remember one of, the, one of the things that surprised me the most um, within the first couple days that I was working for him, is he sort of came over to me at one point in the writer's room or in the hallway and said, you know, I just need like a half sheet of paper. Could you just write me for a scene I'm writing just a list of uh, Bartlett's accomplishments as president? And then he kind of walked, you know, into his office. And I remember thinking, well, I just got here and you've been writing this show for two years. So wouldn't you know his accomplishments? Yeah. And um, Aaron, when he was running the show, I think who's very smart and follows politics pretty closely, but he he kept a sort of a creative distance in a way. He was able to, even though he also was really smart, he was able to be the audience in writing the scenes. So 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 sometimes you'd give him like policy arguments or you'd give him uh, ideas for stories that were about sort of technical things or or you know Washington procedure or whatever and he would he would almost deliberately I think not fully absorb it because he wanted to yeah. know just what the audience was going to be able to handle, just how much was going to establish the reality of the scene, you know, how much he could lose the audience with jargon yeah. versus. So I always thought, well, he's already wow. done three episodes where they're talking about like gun control or whatever. Why does he need any more information on it? He, he kind of managed to stay above it in a way that I think was very good creatively. But, you know, if you go have dinner with him now, he, he reads the newspaper every day. He knows about it those yeah. things. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. Wow. I, uh, it's so funny because I, I, I was hoping to get to the West Wing, but um, the fact that we started there is kind of great. Um, well, it's, uh, and it's how we know each other. Exactly. Because, because as your listeners know well, you, you were on Studio 60 on Sunset Strip. I was a writer there just for like half the season. But, uh, you know, we're, we're Sorkinites to the core. Yes, absolutely. And we I, are all his children. <laughs> we are all his children. Uh, Eli was on the second or third episode of Reading Aloud a year and a half ago. And we were talking about your, we talked about your writing, specifically your speech writing for Gore during the Gore campaign. And um, we talked about the concession speech and how many people wrote it and what it was like to be in that room and and the the party that happened that night, you dancing with one of the Gore daughters, I believe, <laughs> That's right. um, which is a great story. Um, so thank you for coming back to Reading oh, Aloud. Oh, it's a great pleasure. It's, uh, it's great and to I, have you I back. I've listened to a whole bunch of them, and they're great. 
Oh, thanks, man. Thank you. That's generous of you to say. Um, I, yeah, I, I, so I, I, don't, I won't get too deep into speech writing because we've already sort of covered it, but um, I have just one other small Westwind question sure. um, before we moved on, and, and, and that's just what, if you had it an episode, man, I was just, I, I was such a huge fan of that show, and... So was I, by the way. And, and, yeah. And, and, I, and as I mentioned, I, I wasn't before I got there. I mean, I watched a handful of episodes on the air, but in 2001, they weren't out on DVD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw literally like a few episodes as they aired in between the time I interviewed and was hired, and then literally when I started working there... Even before the third season aired, I was borrowing from the office VHS cassettes to take home and yeah, catch up. Right. And, and, you know, I would watch them or even watch rough cuts of episodes, you know, that we were about to air and get goosebumps. I mean, I, it's an experience I really haven't had since in the same way where I just was a super big fan of the thing I was doing all day. It's kind of crazy. I can't think of another network drama um, since that has had – such significance that has been so smart and so fast and so moving and fun and 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 sort of uh, I mean just his the steady the combination of him and Tommy together and the work that like the long walk and talks and the steady cam I mean I don't think there's a lot of in the last 10 15 years that there are many network uh, dramas that have sort of developed not only was the lighting spectacular and Tom Del Ruth and the camera Amazing. work but the writing and the, the overall how a season is plugged in and it's, I, I can't think of another network show that is, that can be its, its peer. It's funny too, because now that I've worked on a bunch of other things since then, um, it, Aaron used to look at it as a theater company to some degree. And he, but I think he, from a writing standpoint, he would say, we're kind of doing a play every week. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, I didn't think deeply about that at the time, but you know, so often when you work on a television show, and I wonder, Nate, if this has been your experience, you're, you're talking to very talented actors and directors, and, you know, you're on a set, and uh, an actor will say something like, well, do you think you'll, you know, should I give you an option on this line? You can always cut it later, or let's add this, and you can edit it out if you decide. And, you know, I, I did this way. There's a lot of discussion of process mm. on the set mm-hmm. and of editing and of the pieces people are going to need to assemble scenes. I feel like that never happened on the West Wing. I feel like people, the actors were just playing yeah. a story. And yeah. you wouldn't go over to Alice and Janney and sort of say, you know what, do it five different ways because in the editing room we'll chop it up and we may just cut this whole section out. <laughs> You're I mean, exactly you right. could give her, you could say, do you want to try it fast? Do you want to try it slow? She could do it. You've worked a lot with Allison and she's she's a genius. But but um, the the it was so pure. Yeah. And um, people found a kind of a place you know, creatively to do those scenes and those stories, and they stayed there. And it's not something you find in television. It's something I've chased since Studio 60. And Studio 60 was a, at, at its core, it was a failed series, and it was broken in a lot of ways. But I, I, I've been chased, but there were those experiences where a majority of the time being on set with those words and those directors and those actors, you just got out of your own way. Yeah. There was, there, there were no conversations about minutia because the guy at the top had already done that work for you. And I think that's why those little conversations about maybe move this, move this, and slow this down, da-da-da, that's happening on set because the work hasn't been done yet. That's totally right. And Aaron's done that work. Yeah, that's right. And that's what makes working for him, whether it's a writer, producer, or an actor, all that more freeing and exciting creatively because he's 
give it, he's, you don't have to hang, haggle with the dealer to like get in the Lamborghini. He's already, he's like, here's the Lamborghini and here are the keys. Just stay straight on the road and you'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, I think that's true. And, 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 you know, there are, there are other, there certainly are fantastic TV shows. I mean, I'm sure of the course. people doing Breaking Bad and the people doing, you know, Mad Men and, you know, those sure. shows. But, but, uh, you know, Aaron's work is so singular, and the voice is yeah. so specific. And yeah. um, even I think, and 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 actually, for a writer who's so stylized and specific, yes, he also really likes the actors to kind of breathe in the scenes and make it their own. You know, look, you look at, and I love Whit Stillman say, but you see a Whit Stillman movie, and I usually really like them, and everybody is everybody sounds like a robot. Mm-hmm. Saying the dialogue and, mm-hmm. and it's affectless, mm-hmm. and uh, and Aaron never wanted that. I mean, yeah. or, or certainly never asked for it, and and so people could make it their own. I mean, it was a kind of a great uh, creative hothouse. Yeah, that's all we yeah. all know. Um, this book that we're going to talk about again, we're talking to Eli Addy. Eli Addy is here. He's a writer. He's a television writer. He's worked on a whole lot of television shows. Uh, we've been talking about the West Wing, but he also ran House for how many years? I didn't run House, but I was a I was a producer and writer uh, on House for five years. Five, last five seasons. Wow, five seasons. Um, he just finished working on a pilot that shot in Chicago, and there were animals in it, but we can't really talk about it, can we? <laughs> uh, if I, I'd have to bring the animals here, they That's, really have to do all their own. They're not welcome here. Bleeding is that the word? B-L-E-A-T? Yes, that is the exact right word. This is an incredible story. Sam just took the book out of my hand. I was trying to. That's how good it is. You can't what? even. No, keep it go in your ahead. Hands. Fucking Sam. Sam, I love you. Do you love me? I love you, Nate. Um, it sounded sincere. <laughs> it was sincere. <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, the path that you took to getting to this book. Um, That's a crazy. Is story. fucking incredible. And I almost want you to just sort of like read the afterward, but that'll be too impersonal. So I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions about it. We're talking about this book. It's called Brooklyn, a personal memoir. By Truman Capote, which he wrote um, in f- 1950. Wrote it in 1958, published in early 59. Okay. Um, it's a beautiful sort of love letter to the Brooklyn Heights neighborhood that he lived in at that time. Um, but the book is called Brooklyn, a personal memoir by Truman Capote with the lost photographs of David Addy. Uh, yes. How do you know David Addy? He was my father. Uh, he was a photographer. That's right. And before that, he was a commercial, commercial illustrator. Illustrator. So he's working as an illustrator, and there comes a time where he's seeing um, the scales tip towards photography. That's right. His job is starting to get marginalized, and so what does he do? Well, yeah. I mean, if you looked at a if you looked at a magazine from 1945 and then looked at a similar magazine from like 1955 or 57, there were very few photographs in magazines, even though there was tons of photography in the world uh, until deep into the 50s. And um, so my father, who had done some painting and had, and had worked at ad agencies, and uh, you know, I've sort of seen like Mad Men style like cigarette ads that he drew even yeah. in the 50s. He, he decided to take a photography class basically because he thought my career's going away. Uh, he was a good deal older than my mom and he died when I was a kid. So, you know, he already was in the 1950s like well into his 30s and uh, had worked for a while as an illustrator and, and he decided to take a photography class and he, I don't know, I could find out from, from my mom who probably knows the answer, but he got into a class, I don't know if it was hard to get into, I think at the new school, 
with um, with a guy named Alexei Brodovich, who was a very, very big deal photography teacher. How did he get into that class? You know, I'm not sure. I'm was not sure whether it was. I'm not sure. You know, it, it, Brodovich, um, it's funny because it's not something I knew a lot about, but if you know magazine history, which I don't really, he's a kind of an iconic guy yeah. in the history of, he, he's basically the godfather of modern magazine design. Mm. He was um, the art director of Harper's Bazaar, which was very influential in, 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 in terms of kind of magazine style. I think in the maybe even like late 30s through the late 50s or something, and um, really mentored uh, and taught Richard Avedon, Irving Penn, wow. uh, Bernice Abbott. He was a big, big deal. Uh, and, and my father got into this class or just took it. Maybe anybody could get into it. Right. But, but the, the basic story is that Brodovich was, I think he was an alcoholic. I think he was supposed to be kind of mean. Yeah. Um, and the class was, you know, like um, – I say in the afterword to this book, a little bit like the movie Whiplash. Right. You know, that he he would rip people's work to pieces. So in that sense, maybe it was easy to get into the class and he would just destroy you right. in most cases. And, you know, this was my father's big shot. And the very first assignment that um, at least my father got, I don't know if the whole class was doing the same assignment, but was to go take photographs of the original Penn Station in New York City before it was torn down and replaced. And mm -hmm. it was this beautiful structure that I know a lot of people tried to landmark. And I think the landmark preservation laws in New York, in fact, are because the original mm. Penn Station was torn down. Mm. Uh, I could be wrong about that. But my father went and took all these photographs, brand new photographer, and, and they were all shot at the wrong exposure. So in his dark room, late at night, the night before the class, he realized he didn't have a single usable image. They were all way too light. I guess they were overexposed. And he panicked. I mean, basically, he yeah. was going to come in the next day, his big shot, and be destroyed by this guy who was a rough customer anyway for technically not even being, being able to, like, use a camera. Mm -hmm. And so what my father did long, long before the sort of modern Photoshop era is he just started layering the negatives together and making kind of moody montages, you know, they were almost like, you know, there'd be two or three images on top of each other slightly not lined up right. Mm. So you would, mm. you know, they, I've, I've seen these pictures. They look really cool and moody. He did it out of late night desperation. Amazing. And the next day, Brodovich totally flipped out and just spent the whole class talking about how great these images of my dad's were. So he kind of dodged a bullet in a way. And so at the, when the class ended, the last night of the class, he offered my father, and this would have been 1950, I think probably 1958, maybe 1957, his first professional job of any kind as a photographer, which was to do a series of those collages that my father had made up, basically, maybe other people had done them, I don't know, to illustrate Breakfast at Tiffany's by Capote, which was supposed to run in Harper's Bazaar. Holy shit. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. Like, because your your first big job wasn't by mistake, but your first big job was for someone pretty substantial. Who I mean, I mean, Aaron Sorkin was a big deal in in two thousand, but he's he's you know he's oh my god. But even in two thousand, I mean, I remember uh, talking to a screenwriter, a pretty well known screenwriter, who I got to know in L.A. a couple of years after I moved here. So this would have been like two thousand two, two thousand three. I remember him saying to me, "Who's a bigger household name among screenwriters than Aaron Sorkin?" Like, what other yeah. screenwriter can most Americans name? Even back then, yeah, he, he there kind of isn't bigger than him. That was from A Few Good Men and from, uh, what, what else? Yeah, I mean, well, the American A Few Good Men, and, The American President, yeah. and, and The West Wing, I think. Yeah. And, you know, obviously he had Sports Night also, but I think those things, The West Wing was getting written about so much. That's yeah. probably, because of the subject matter, it was in the New York Times like every day, yeah. just about. Yeah. Um, so your dad gets this job to, 
to illustrate um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And up to that point, I, I don't. I know very little. I did some research on Capote before this interview, but um, before that, he was most famous for um, other voices, other rooms, which is that novel yeah. he wrote. I that mean, was sort of his breakthrough, right? Well, that was his. I think it was his first novel. Um, maybe he had some. I think that was his first published novel, and that's in the 1940s. And uh, and and that probably you know got him a little bit of attention. I'm not a Capote expert, but I think after Other Voices, Other Rooms. He just became a kind of a – he wasn't – before Breakfast at Tiffany's came out, he wasn't like a literary superstar. Right. But he was a sort of a known yeah. uh, sort of fiction writer who also did all kinds of magazine pieces. Right. And, you know, right. New Yorker, long New Yorker profiles. He did in the 50s an amazing profile of Marlon Brando. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. He was writing short fiction. So he was sort of man about town in New York and and lived in Brooklyn for for, for all his great work. But it was really Breakfast at Tiffany's that made him a star. A star, yeah. Uh, which it really did. When your dad um, gets this job, he, uh, he has to – so he goes out to Brooklyn Heights – were you talking about Tiffany's? Or, yes, or yeah. The Tiffany's job was all shot in Manhattan. That's a oh, different, okay. That's a different body of work. And actually, the story that I tell in the afterword of this Brooklyn book is not completely accurate. I learned some things after this went to print about the Breakfast at Tiffany's thing that, that kind of blew my mind. A bit. Right. This book is about the essay, not right. Tiffany's. Right. right. But because Tiffany's, um, he takes the photographs in Manhattan for Tiffany's, but Harper's, because they're owned by the Hearst Corporation, freaks out because of the content of the story, and yeah. says, no, thank you. We, yeah, can't, we can't run this. Well, they did a couple things. One is that, so my father spent something like two months full-time, around the clock, photographing, and I actually uh, have those negatives and, and uh, hope to maybe do something with them at some point. But he did these montages, so a lot of the negatives are kind of component pieces of moody, evocative, really collages of people in nightclubs and uh, cats, and, you know, they're very... Um, they're very sort of uh, moody uh, little, uh, I don't even know how to describe them. They're great. Yeah, little like uh, s- urban vignettes. Yeah, almost. kind yeah. of. And just, just they, they, they set a mood more than they tell a story. But, yeah, yeah. But um, so I think what was going to happen was Brodovich did the layouts and my father did these montages. So it was probably going to be some full page images of my father's and also things like cats crawling on the sort of edges of the pages. And it was going to be a work mm. of art just the way it was laid out. Yeah. And Capote, uh, according to some books on Capote um, that, I, that I sort of looked through, loved these, loved the whole thing. He loved the spread. He loved my father's work. And, and Hearst basically said to Harper's Bazaar, we're not running a story with the phrase bull dyke in it. We're not running a story, you know, about a woman who sleeps with men for money. And they had a whole bunch of changes to the work that they wanted Capote to make. And he wasn't a nobody. And at first he said no. But according to somebody at Harper's in one book about Capote, he loved these layouts so much. He loved the work so much that he agreed to the changes in the end. That's incredible. And 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 he made the changes. And then uh, Hearst still said Harper's can't run it. So... So this is where I was wrong uh, in the afterward to the book. I thought that was the end of my father's connection with Breakfast at Tiffany's. In fact, it wasn't. Um, 
Capote resold the work to Esquire. And I managed to get from this university library in Georgia um, some letters Capote wrote to Esquire that talk about my father. Whoa. And yeah, I was this thing where I just was looking online. I was searching, as I've done throughout this whole process, just looking for scraps of information about a story. My mother hadn't even met my father till the next decade. You know, there's not a lot of, everyone involved with this is dead now. There's not a lot of places you can go for information. But first I found a letter from Capote to Esquire where he's basically saying something about the details of running breakfast at Tiffany's. And I think he went back to the original version for them and saying, you know, I'm so pleased that you're using the work of David Addy. You know, I think it's great. And, you know, something like that. (laughs) And then what happened was he was thinking they would use, you know, 12 pages of these montages, which is what Harper's Bazaar was going to use. And in the end, they decided to only run a single photograph, one page. Mm. And Capote was um, very upset about that. The second letter that I have of his, he's basically saying – I told you that you could only buy Tiffany's if you used this guy's work too. Right. Um, To Esquire. Yes, that you had to use the work of this guy, David Addy. And he was very upset that they were only using one photograph. But he said, if you're going to do that, use this one and not that one. Wow. And actually, it did run in Esquire. I never knew that. But there is one full-page image of my dad's in that original publication. And there are later later publications of of the story that – uh, it's a novella, is that? Yeah, a, yeah. A, it's probably uh, like it was never published. It's so short that it was never published as a standalone yeah. book. But the book had a couple other short stories kind of tacked in the back. So when Esquire ran it, they ran the entire novella, and about six months before it came out as a book, and that copy of Esquire. It's such a different time that like a literary work yeah. could have a magazine flying off newsstands. Yeah, but it yeah. really, it, they sold out yeah. the first pressing much faster. I mean, that issue sold a huge right. number of copies. I feel it's sort of like Salinger with The New Yorker. Yeah. He had his stories and people just fucking lost their minds. Different time. I mean, yeah. you know, no one had DVRs, you know, no yeah. one had smartphones. Exactly. You know, exactly. you might as well go read a short story. So later, um, uh, public, uh, I guess, later editions of Breakfast at Tiffany's had photographs of your father's? Well, I found one paperback edition of Breakfast at Tiffany's from the 90s that had one of his montages on the cover, a different one than the one that ran in Esquire, and I have no idea how it got How the fuck did they get it? I actually have no idea where they got it or how it ran. In the 90s? Yeah, and so that's the only other. So the original Esquire magazine had had a full-page montage of my dad's that was never reproduced in any other version of Breakfast Tiffany, as far as I know. And then there was this um, paperback of, of it that has a different collage of his. So there you go. You found these photographs. The um, Again, we're talking to Eli Addy, and the, the book is called Brooklyn, a personal memoir by Truman Capote with the lost photographs of David Addy. You found all of these photographs. There are several really spectacular photos of Truman Capote that no one had ever seen yes, before. that's right. That's and they right. were taken... So this is this is a few months after the Tiffany's thing right. fell apart, and I who knows it was probably a huge heartbreak to my father. I, I have no idea, but uh, but he was my father. Truman Capote wrote this essay for Holiday Magazine, which was a very kind of prestigious and stylish sort of travel magazine in yeah. the, in the mid century. And Arthur C. Clarke would write about like the moon and all kinds of great authors uh, would, well. would write for them. And actually, the editor who commissioned this piece. Uh, by Capote was John Knowles, who later wrote a separate piece, and and he was an editor at Holiday Magazine, and he was just trying to get great writers to write for them, and approached Truman Capote, and and got Capote to write 
uh, a, a little nonfiction piece about how he came to live in Brooklyn Heights and what his life was like in the places he hung out and the neighborhood characters. So my father, and I don't know how or through who, probably through Capote himself because he had liked all this other work my dad had done, uh, my father was hired to, to illustrate this article. So what he did is he went to Capote's house in Brooklyn Heights, or the house he, he rented rooms in, actually. It yeah. wasn't his house. And uh, he d- took some portraits of Capote, uh, then they went around Brooklyn together for maybe a day. And then my father spent a bunch of other days on his own. And um, when the magazine came out in 1959, February 1959, um, there were some photographs of my father's, including one or two full-page photographs, but just of, of Brooklyn street photography, no photographs of Truman Capote. And I didn't know anything about any of this until about three years ago in the process of digging through my father's archive and negatives, all of which are in the brownstone uh, that I grew up in and which my mother has lived in ever since, um, I just found this little envelope that said Capote on it. Holy shit. And and it was just negatives. There were contact sheets in another place in the house, but I I didn't find them right away. And I I brought them back to L.A. and I had them printed. And they are – they're the greatest photographs of Truman Capote I've ever seen. Absolutely. I mean, they're unbelievable. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're very evocative. They're, they're, I, I say this in the afterwards of the book. One of them in particular, it's like a Hitchcock movie. He's at the bottom of this staircase, and he looks so severe. Yeah, it's just so intense. And I have no idea why these were never seen. They were never printed. Uh, they were never published We're looking anyway. at the photograph right now, and it's, it's fucking stunning. It's amazing. You can find them online if you just Google, you know, Capote, Addy. You know, they're, they're, now they're, they're all over the place. But, but it's... Um, it's a mystery to me, and I guess it's because when, when probably Tiffany's didn't come out until this work was submitted to oh. Holiday Magazine, so he was right. you know known but not that big. He wasn't and also, a star. wasn't a star. And if you look at that issue of Holiday Magazine, which I bought on eBay, actually the original issue, um, <laughs> it just says on the cover Brooklyn Heights. It doesn't mention Truman Capote's name. Wow. And if you go inside, it says, uh, uh, you know. Brooklyn Heights, a personal memoir by Truman Capote. It has no little biographical paragraph on him. doesn't say who he is. It's just a guy writing a thing. Right. The first, the first two sentences are genius. I live in Brooklyn, period, by choice, period. Uh, yeah. It's so strange how much Brooklyn has, has changed. Uh, I guess it's not strange. It's been 70 years but um, or f- 60 years. Uh, but these photographs are amazing to me specifically because I lived, when I first moved to New York, I'd lived on my brother's couch for a month and he lived on Warren street off of Hicks in oh, Cobble wow. Hill, right where the BQE sort yeah. of intersects. And he could see the, uh, from his kitchen window, you could see, uh, the docks and the very sort of Southern tip of Manhattan. And like the, the promenade was like a 10 minute walk up Hicks street. Wow. And my first girlfriend not even a girlfriend, a girl that I was sort of chasing, that I was in love with, lived on Hicks. It was her first apartment. Right by, like, the fruit streets. Which Cherche are, La Femme. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's the same old story. That's part of my life. Um, but those, those streets are, I mean, m- some of the most exclusive streets in Brooklyn. And again, that was in 2000 before the rest of Brooklyn started gentrifying and changing. Um, but Brooklyn Heights was always the place in Brooklyn where I mean, that's where the Cosby Show took place. Like the Cosby oh, Show, like I didn't lived on. That. Yeah, he oh, lived on Hicks. They they lived on oh, Hicks. That's very interesting. Um, and it was where big finance people who didn't want to live in Manhattan they lived in Brooklyn. These beautiful cop. Um, uh, there's some cobblestone streets and these amazing sort of pre-war buildings, these brownstones, and you, it's two stops to Lower Manhattan, basically on the subway, with an amazing view of Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge, mm. and sometimes the Manhattan Bridge if you look. 
if you get the right if perspective. You squint and yeah, if you squint. Um, so I've so my first few months in New York, I spent wandering Brooklyn Heights, basically. So there are so many photographs here. There's a there's a photograph specifically of a carriage house. Oh yeah, this sure. I've walked by right. this oh carriage house a thousand times. Oh, that's so interesting. The first time I almost got arrested, I was not far from this carriage house in a park drinking beer by myself out of a out of a um, paper bag because I thought I was wow. like I lived in New York City. Well, and I, I should, should mention something. I should mention just because just because we haven't. So so the book that Nate is holding in his hand, you know, I found these pictures of Capote. I found something like eight hundred. Um, photographs my father had taken of Brooklyn Heights and what is now uh, kind of downtown Brooklyn and, and uh, Dumbo. Yeah. I think it was all probably called Brooklyn Heights then. And uh, and a publisher, wonderful publisher named Angela Hederman, who has an imprint called The Little Book Room, put out, uh, it's basically a photo book. It has the Capote, original Capote essay in it and then like 80 or 90 pages of full-page photographs of, of Brooklyn street photography. Yeah. So that's what we're... Yeah, the, the book is is gorgeous. It's beautiful. She did a great job. Angela Hederman edited it, published it, chose these from from the hundreds and hundreds of pictures and did a beautiful job kind of turning it into a narrative. If you live in New York City, and you don't even have to live in Brooklyn Heights, but if you live in New York City, one of the charming things about living in New York is looking at old photographs of what the city used to look like as opposed to what it looks not like now. And... Um, and flipping through these photographs, it just it is so fucking Brooklyn. It is so charming. They're all taken in the 50s, and there's kids on stoops, and there's a flower wagon, and there's a garbage man, and there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a barber shop. There's restaurants and bars and waiters, and, and there's a b- bunch of guys in a bar watching a ball game. It's just so stunning. And if you spend any time in Brooklyn— like this is such a great book to give like as a gift to someone who values Brooklyn Heights or the history of Brooklyn. And it's even a better gift for someone who loves Truman Capote mm. and appreciates sort of his history in New York. Um, it's interesting because you reminded me of one, and thank you for saying that, first of all, you reminded me of one little detail that I think is so hilarious. There's one picture in the book, it's just of a garbage man, a sanitation worker. I love it. Emptying a garbage can into the back of a sanitation truck, and this garbage can is like 60% of the size of a modern garbage can. And yeah. It's almost like, did we, are we making more garbage now? And there's like a door. There's like a very small door. It, it's, it's not like one of those enormous mouths that they have now in, gar- in garbage trucks. There's just yeah, sort right. of- Yes. He sort of opens this door. It's like a dainty little process. Yeah, it's garbage adorable. Was dainty it was adorable 1950s. garbage. Yeah, look at this. Look at how small that little thing is. He's got a hat on, too. It's crazy. Yeah, that's right. It's like miniature garbage. And there's amazing photographs of the of the East River, children like swimming in the East River with the Brooklyn Bridge. Right, which them. now you would get like, you know, yeah. nine diseases in the first 10 minutes. Not- I mean, the other thing that's interesting about the book is that um, even when I was growing up, Brooklyn Heights was kind of the fancier part of Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm, I don't know what the demographics are, but it, it's always felt to me when I go there now, unfortunately, it's very white. And, yes. And these photographs are crazily multi-ethnic mm. for maybe the one part of Brooklyn mm. that is very, very white. Yeah, right totally. Now. There's kids in turbans playing with African-American and white kids. Like, it's really kind of beautiful. Yeah, I was about to say the photos of the children specifically are very diverse. I love these shots. This is my favorite, these two waiters. Oh, those are my favorite photographs in the book. Yeah, those these two photographs. These are amazing. Crusty old uh, waiters that, you know, we don't even, I think, I, actually, I think one of them is a place called Joe's Restaurant. I think we identified one of the restaurants. 
but it's um oh god it's so fucking charming these are the guys who you know would would serve your your soup out of some giant yeah. terrine and, yeah exactly you know growl be, at you if exactly you don't finish your vegetables exactly and, they'd be pissed I mean, I, these guys still exist. They're like Musso and Franks, you know, but like th- these kinds of waiters, there's not too many of them left in the universe. It's a crazy time capsule. And, and what's interesting, too, about the photographs, well, you know, there's so much that's interesting to me about the, the work in the sense that um, my father, who went on to have a, a really interesting career as a photographer and, and did some, he took great portraits of Bobby Fischer and Lorraine Hansberry and, you know, all kinds of people uh, and did lots of non-celebrity things too, but he, um, he was never a street photographer and he wasn't trying to be a street photographer. I don't think when he did this work, he really, if you looked at the original wow. holiday magazine spread, I think three of the four pictures that ran in that issue were doctored. They were either montages. One of them had a bizarre kind of fisheye lens effect. And, and, but he, but to assemble those, he spent, you know, a week just photographing all over the place. And, and the publisher and editor of this book, Angela Hederman, it was her decision when she saw the negatives to run them totally uncropped um, and not to use any doctored photographs in the book so that actually it made ineligible basically all the photographs originally used in the magazine. And they're beautifully composed. They're, they have a very sort of tender point of view toward the kids and toward the people. It's yeah. totally non-exploitative. There's no Irving Penn-like, look at the crazy wrinkles on this old guy. You know, there's none of that voyeurism, <laughs> which yeah. I sometimes like seeing. Vivian Meyer and kind of, yeah. Totally, yeah. yeah. Vivian Meyer is, is well, it's interesting because Vivian Meyer, some of her work I think is a little a little exploitative. Yeah. But like, like this work, shot with a medium format camera where you look down. So arguably people don't really know you're taking their oh, photograph. That's great. Um, uh, but, but, you know, it's a, I, I love this work. Where can people find, where can people find this book? How oh, anywhere. They, how it's, can they it's, purchase it's, it? It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble online. I mean, you know, how many copies are out in bookstores? I'm not sure, but, but, um, it's, it's, you can certainly, you know, buy it through Amazon or any online bookstore. It's, it's, it's distributed by Random House. It's, it's not a, it's not a little, uh, no. vanity thing, though I, 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 I'm not saying there's no vanity involved. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that it was hard to get by saying where can, where can people get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Well, just, you know, but, 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 but it's funny because the reason I, I, I point that out and I'm almost a little defensive about it is it was before I stumbled upon this work and even for a few months after I did, it was very hard to get attention. I was trying to get attention for my late father's work and there's so many dead photographers and there's so many photographs in the world. No one really cares. So the idea of being able to, you know, I just really emailed some JPEGs of this to the, to the publisher through a, through the contact us link on their website yeah. because they had published other Capote stuff, and and um, to get somebody to say yes, oh, we'll we'll do a photo book, a coffee table book of your father's work. That never happens. So the, something like this probably should just be a self-published. That's how this would happen. People were yeah. saying to me start a website on your own, and 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 to some degree, what I really wanted was to claim legitimacy yeah. for this work. And so so that's why I sort of, you know, I'm saying it's Random House and Absolutely. actually it's a real book and it's Absolutely. printed on real paper because <laughs> none of that was to take for granted. It's know? a great lesson in the afterward about just asking for things. You you sought it out. You made this happen yourself. And now it, I'm holding it in my hand. And that's because you were a bloodhound and you found these photographs, you found the story, you put it all together, you found the editor and, and here it is. I guess that. Well I guess I guess I guess that's the pattern of my life. When Fucking you talk about the West Wing stories, pick up, that pick up the phone, just make phone calls and call someone. Just work the phone. Doesn't matter. You'll you get know? there. 
The book, again, is called Brooklyn, A Personal Memoir by Truman Capote with the lost photographs of David Addy. And my guest is Eli Addy, his son, who works in television. Um, this book is beautiful, man. Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure. I, uh, I, I can't I get you out of here without asking two things. One, the introduction is written by George Plimpton. Yes. Um, Not from the grave, right. however. He wrote it originally when this... When did yes, you write the, the publisher? So this was a this was an essay that even though it you know ran in the fifties and it, it's been in print in other ways over the years, and uh, I think there are some Capote anthology. It was an essay of his that he liked a lot, and so there are some anthologies of his work that had included it. So the publisher, the Little Book Room, who published this photo book of uh, you know of the essay and my dad's work, had done the reason I contacted them out of the blue when I found the work is that. In 2002, they published just the essay as a tiny little standalone book. Yeah. They, they published a lot of books about New York. Yeah. And so at the time when they did that, George Plimpton, who was still alive, um, and interestingly enough to tie all these things together, who I, I met a couple times, and, and, and one time I was, I'd, I'd been to some weird thing at his house once. Holy and so shit. It, well, that's a whole long story. Okay. I didn't really know him, but I, I was walking down the street probably around 2002, 2003, um, when I was working on the West Wing and saw him on the street and I stopped him and introduced myself and said, I was at this event at your house and we talked for two minutes and he was incredibly delightful and told me he really wanted to be on the West Wing. And, and, uh, which we should have taken him up on, but he said um, something like, I could play a really addled ambassador. Oh my God. That was what he wanted. So he- Roger Reese, I guess, got that part. Yeah, that's true. We did well with Roger Reese on that show. But- but May so, rest in peace. so Mr. Plimpton wrote this introduction in 2002, and it was imported into this new edition. How has someone not made the George Plimpton movie yet? Have you seen the documentary about his life? It's great. It is so fucking good. It blew my mind. I knew a little bit about him. I did. I used to do bits on Conan way back in the day, and just like to, uh, uh, like background yeah. for like their I, first sketches before the first guest I think comes I, out. I think I. I feel like I've seen some of those. I doubt it, but oh. maybe. But one of the days that I worked was a day that they had George Plimpton on to do a bit. Oh, wow. And he, we were in the, we shared the same green room. Oh, wow. And I knew who he was, but I didn't quite understand like how significant yeah, he was. Yeah, he's huge. And participatory journalism and sort of the, the Paris Review and, and whatever. You can go, you, we could do five hours on him. Um, but I shook his hand. I said, very nice to meet you. And I forget, I don't know what, I feel like we mentioned... I talked about baseball because there was a baseball game on in the TV. The Yankees were playing a day game. Oh, wow. And he was watching. He had his arms behind, folded behind his, his back. And he had one hand cl- clasped around the other hand. The other hand was kind of squeezing his, the, the other palm. And he was kind of, kind of rocking a little bit watching this baseball game. And um, when I saw this documentary a few months back, I just became sort of obsessed with him and went back and um, – and Red Paper Lion, and... Such a great book. Oh, my God. I just, I started scouring. This is what I do when I become obsessed with someone. I want photographs and signed mm. things of theirs. So I have an autograph of his. Uh, it's, a, it's a signature. It's on, like, a very small sort of piece of, like, uh, maybe four by six piece of paper. That, that you got from him or that, that you, no, that you that bought? No, that I found on eBay oh, wow. through this, this um, autograph seller. And it says, um, I decided to pack the football, which is the very first sentence of paper. Line. Oh my God. I decided to pack the football. That's fantastic. And, uh, and, and that's like framed in my home and I, I look that's at fantastic. it every day. You know, this is what's interesting about George Plimpton is that you and I from totally different parts of the country and in totally different situations yeah. both yeah. met him. 
And I think that probably any random guest you brought in here would have met George Plimpton because he knew everybody. He yeah. was everywhere. Yeah. And he did everything. Yeah. He's one of those people who just was everywhere yeah. all the time. I don't know how someone hasn't done that movie yet, the biopic of his life, because it's fucking, it's substantial. You no, know, it may be. It's funny. I was having this conversation a couple of days ago about Teddy Roosevelt. And, yeah. and somebody was saying, well, why hasn't that movie been done, even though he's popped up in other movies? And it may be the same reason, which is Too that much? those lives are so interesting you can't really do them justice, and maybe no one would believe it in a movie. Fuck yeah, maybe. you know, because they're so unreal. Or maybe you cut down and do just like you know. No, it's a great. There's this, there's a great. That's a glib answer, but there's a great story. There's to be an told unbelievable about. There's 50 story. Great stories exactly. to be told about him. Any five year period in his life. Hey Sam. Hey guys. Do you have Do you have the plugin that I, so where I can play something from my computer yes. go through the soundboard? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we're gonna close on this. I know that. Um, I don't even know. We talked about this. Last time you were on the, the podcast, but um, one of my favorite indie bands, my favorite bands, period, oh. is um, is Got It by Voices, and uh, they've broken up several times. And Robert Pollard has fired his band multiple times, and and uh, and he's had an enormous solo career, and he you know he writes fifty songs a day, and he has a thousand albums. You're wearing a Boston spaceships. You're wearing a Boston spaceships T-shirt, which is. Um, was that the name of his? It's a side project. Side project. It's one right. of about eighty little side bands that, that the <laughs> right. singer of God by Voices has. <laughs> um, so, so we both adore and love God by Voices. Um, and you just came in today, saying that you just saw he's they've he's hired a new band, right? New lineup, new lineup, and he's touring again this spring and summer, right? As Guided by Voices, as Guided by Voices, playing the fucking hits, unbelievable. And I heard actually because I'm in touch with their road manager. We text sometimes, and and he said uh, the road manager, who's very close friends with the singer, said that he he he's been told the set list is amazing, but he hasn't been told anything that's on it. He already knows what well, the set. No, the, I think the rehearsing this is now. This is any Guided by Voices fan will sort of understand this. <laughs> Essentially, that means that Bob Pollard has said to him, "The set list is amazing." <laughs> Without mentioning a single song Which on it. Which means nothing. Uh, what's your favorite uh, GBV song? Wow. I mean, if I had to pick a favorite song, yeah. it would probably be Tractor Rape Chain. Okay. Yeah. I, I, thousand. I mean, that that to me, they have so many great songs, so many great albums. Um, uh, you know, later period, Glad Girls is such a brilliant, fantastic song. Sure. Oh, I, my God. I feel like Glad Girls is a little too... It's too poppy. Yeah, for, me. for sure. I, I I love it. I've listened to it a lot. But, There's only but like two chords. This song is is genius. Yeah, this is one right of my, I think this is this is one of my yeah. favorites as well. This is on um, B thousand. Everybody should own the album B thousand. It's one of the great indie rock albums of all time. I agree because it does this, and then I mean I could listen to this whole album right now, but it, it, it also we, we could just sit and listen to it and, and just talk about it or how not much we talk, love it. Just listen. Yeah. Hum. Uh, my personal favorite, and it's, I don't think it's even close, is uh, oh god, really? I'm doing all this loud. I'm, this this one. This is a different version oh. of the song, but is this your favorite version? Or, no. do, or would you prefer the lo-fi version? This is the this is the studio version, right? Sort of the the, the hi-fi version. Yeah, I mean, there's there's. There's a bunch of different versions, but... Yeah, it's um, a great song. I mean, it's a great song. It's a great fucking song. Um, 
I've seen them probably six or seven times, and they play this. I feel like they play this this and Chapter Eight, Jen, yeah. and, and like Motor Away. Yeah, the, the, there's a, there's maybe ten songs ten. that are the kind of real eternal. Yeah, it's like the Stones playing Satisfaction. Exactly, like, you, you get a refund if they if they. Forget. Goddamn right. Um, so you you saw that there are some uh, dates coming up. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is Los Angeles included? Um, you know, th- I got this email this morning that was maybe from, you know, I'm just on some mass lists and it had some tour dates. There, there wasn't an L.A. date, but there will be an L.A. date. I've been told okay. they're definitely playing the West Coast. I think I even may have been told a date, like maybe, I want to say July. Okay. Because um, i got to clear my fucking but, schedule. But, but to anybody listening to this podcast, you, they're a great band live. They're, they're really yes. fun. The songs are great. Oh, God, They have yeah. a lot of energy. So full of enthusiasm. You will, you will leave transformed. Absolutely. Um, Eli Addy, I can't thank you enough for coming back on Reading Aloud, and, um, and I hope my listeners go grab your book. It's a real pleasure to be here. And Thanks, thank man. Thanks for having me back. Hey, man, um, the club is open. <laughs> Salty salute to you. Let's talk about Comedy Bang Bang Live, the 2016 live tour, 19 tour stops, 22 performances, live only on Howl FM, H-O-W-L dot F-M. Paul F. Tompkins, Lauren Lapkus, and Neil Campbell, the special guests. Can you go to 19 tour stops and see the shows? Yeah, I mean, if you're a psychopath, but I'm assuming you can't go to all the shows, but... If you sign up with Howl FM, you get to listen to all of them, plus 120 hours of original miniseries and audio documentaries, and over 90 comedy albums. And there's new episodes and albums every week. All this access can come to your iPhone, your Android phone, any kind of phone for $4.99 a month. And with the promo code READING, you get a full month free at checkout. So, remember... You want to hear all of the Comedy Bang Bang live tour. You want to hear all the other shows that Earwolf produces. Go to howl.fm, H-O-W-L.fm. Use the promo code READING and get a free one-month trial. There he goes. There he goes. His name is Eli Addy. He's a really bright guy. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's, his, this book is gorgeous. It really, really is. And if you have any any interest in Truman Capote or like old timey Brooklyn and I lived in Brooklyn so it's just maybe it's that's why it's so charming to me go pick it up it's a gorgeous book um so big thanks again to Eli for coming in and being part of this week's show we have a book club coming up I would love for you I would love for you to be a part of it the book is called Geek Love it's written by Catherine Dunn pick it up read it and be a part of the show also, there's really great episodes um, on the horizon. We have a really fun conversation with Tim Simons uh, from Veep. He reads this really hilarious piece that he found that he brought to me. And we talk about his experience on Veep and his time, his work as an actor and his time growing up in Maine. Um, it's a really fun conversation. That's on the horizon. That's coming up. Also, a conversation with Jensen Karp, who has a show on this network um, called Get Up On This with Matt Robinson. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Kanye West Owes Me $300 and other stories. He was a rapper, and he wrote a book about his uh, experience in the rap community. 
It's real, real funny. Uh, so we're going to have that coming up as well. Book club, two fun conversations, a whole lot going on here at Reading Aloud. Uh, for Sam Kiefer and for me, Nate Cordry, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with more Reading Aloud. I love you, Nate. I love you, Sam. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Hey everyone, Scott Ackerman here, and I want to tell you that the Comedy Bang Bang show is going on tour. We're on tour right now. Me, Paul F. Tompkins, Lauren Lapkus, Neil Campbell for half of it, and Mike Hanford for the other half. And you can get in on the madness even without a ticket by following Earwolf on Snapchat. We'll be taking snaps during shows on the road and behind the scenes. And remember, you can hear every single live show the next day on Howl. Use the code CBBLIVE at Howl.fm when you sign up, and you'll get one month for free. Thanks, and I'll see you soon in a city near you. Los Angeles, California! This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.com